Would you please turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We are continuing our Be Strong series where we're going verse by verse through the book of 2 Peter here on Sunday mornings. All right, let's pray and we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. I thank you, God, for everybody that's here today, everybody watching online. And Lord, I pray that your word would go forth today in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and with power, that our hearts would be encouraged, challenged, that Lord, you would do a work in us today that we would leave this place differently than how we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things about teaching chapter by chapter and verse by verse through books of the Bible like we do here on Sunday mornings, most of the time, is that you come to chapters that aren't the funnest to teach. Second Peter chapter 2 is one of those chapters. It deals with the subject of false teachers and false prophets. In fact, I would venture to say there's probably not a topical teacher focusing in on this chapter this morning (laughs) anywhere because they're they're not the funnest uh, to teach. But as we noted last week, because this is a warning that God warns us because he loves us. Same way we do as kids or or with our kids, right? We warn them because we love them. And so although these type of chapters in the Bible may not be the funnest to go through, they're necessary. It's almost like, you know, when you encourage your kids to eat their vegetables. And so we've seen here, we began looking at this last week. We looked at verses 1 through 14. And and it was there that Peter gave us the characteristics or the traits of these false teachers. And we noted that the first thing he tells us is that they were always around. They always have been and there always will be false teachers trying to creep into the church. The second thing that he noted about them is that their approach is that they is very subtle. They're not outright, they're not blatant, but they kind of come in 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 stealth. They they come in subtly. And then we noted that he mentioned what their tactic was, that it's to distort the truth. The truth about Jesus and denying his deity, his lordship, and denying his atonement, the the work of substitution upon the cross. And then Peter highlighted their motives, and their motives was covetousness, greed. And then the last thing that we noted last week was that in their arrogance, they despise authority. Now, Peter mentions their motives in verses 3, 10, and in verse 14, and he talks about how they are driven by their own lust and their own greed. And as we come today to verse 15, Peter is going to give us an example from the Old Testament, a man by the name of Balaam, of what this what he's been describing looks like of, of these false teachers being motivated and driven by their, their greed. Let's begin reading here in verse 15 of chapter 2. He says this, 
They have forsaken the way, the right way. Note that. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following, notice what he calls it, the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophets. Balaam being spoken to by a donkey. This is Mr. Ed before Mr. Ed, all right? But I want you to notice that he mentions here that they have gone the way of Balaam. And Balaam is this mysterious prophet that the Bible talks about in Numbers chapters 23, 24, or 22, 23, and 24. And Balaam could be a guy who would be, you know, placed in what we might call the Old Testament hall of shame. He is a lousy prophet. And I want to give you a Reader's Digest version of his story. It happens when Balak, the king of Moab, hears that the Israelites are heading in his direction. This massive group of people that has come out of Egypt, and he's already heard what they did to the cities of Zion and Og and how they defeated them. And so he finds himself in a place where he's kind of worried about this, and so he wants to hire this prophet by the name of Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the people of Israel. So he has some of his officials go and find Balaam, and they say to Balaam, hey, the king wants you to come and see him. And Balaam goes in and he prays and he asks God, can I go with these guys? Should I go with him? And the Lord says no. So he comes back out and he says, hey, I went and prayed. I talked to my God and he says not to go with you. Well, they come back, these officials, they tell Balak, you know, he prayed and he said, God said that he couldn't come, so he's not coming. And so Balak gets upset with that and he sends some even greater officials, more important officials to go and find Balaam and to ask him to come. And so these more important guys come and they say, hey, look, the king really, really wants you to come and meet with him. And once again, Balaam says, well, let me go pray. And he goes and prays. He comes back out and says, I'm sorry, God said that I couldn't, I can't go. And then he adds this. He says, and even if you were to give me a household full of gold, hint, 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 I wouldn't go with you. So these guys go back and they say, hey, you know, he says he can't come. He prayed and and God told him he couldn't come. But then he said, and even if we were to give him a household full of gold, he wouldn't come. Well, Balak got the hint. He sends the next group of guys, this time bringing with them a cart full of gold, and they come and they say, hey, the king wants to see you, and there's a lot more gold where this came from, so would you please come with us? And this time Balaam goes and prays, and the Lord tells him, okay, you know, go ahead and go. If you're going to be that stubborn, go ahead and go, but only tell the king the words that I put into your mouth. So Balaam heads out on his way, and he's riding on his donkey. And as the donkey's going along, suddenly the angel of the Lord appears in the path, and the donkey freaks out. Now, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, but Balaam doesn't. So the donkey goes running off into this field, and Balaam, you know, is like, what are you doing? And he starts beating the donkey, and he gets it back on the trail, and they start going a little ways, and they're coming to this vineyard, and it's really, really a narrow place. And the donkey, once again, the angel of the Lord appears on the path, and the donkey presses up against this wall, crushing Balaam's leg. 
And Balaam gets mad and he starts beating the donkey again. And he's like, what are you doing? And suddenly the angel of the Lord leaves and they keep going. And then the angel of the Lord appears again a third time. And this time he's in the path, he's got his sword drawn, and the donkey just sits down in the path, like, I'm not going anywhere. And Balaam starts beating the donkey. He starts hitting the donkey, and it tells us here in verse 16 that the donkey started speaking. Notice it said, the Lord opens the mouth of his dumb donkey. Notice it calls him a dumb donkey. That's a donkey that doesn't speak. So you've got a dumb donkey and an even dumber prophet. You've got dumb and dumber, all right? And uh, so I want to read to you from the account in Numbers 23, because this is just crazy. It says, so the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, this is crazy, right? A donkey speaking to a man. But what happens next is even crazier because we're told in verse 29, and Balaam said to the donkey. Think about this. Let's say you go home today and you walk into the house And your dog Spot says to you, I'm tired of Alpo. I want something else to eat. Are you going to stand there like amazed that your dog is talking to you? Are you going to start going like, well, Spot, what would you like to eat instead? You know? I mean, this is crazy, right? Balaam is talking to this donkey. And so Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there was a sword in my hand for now I would have killed you. So Balaam's talking back to this donkey, and the donkey keeps talking to him. It says, so the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Have I ever done this to you before? And Balaam says, no. Like, they're having a conversation here. And the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head, Balaam did, and fell flat on his face. So the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and tells him, if it wasn't for your donkey, I would have killed you. But now that you have gone this far, go ahead and keep going. But just know this, I'm going to tell you again, don't say anything that I don't put into your mouth. Don't say any words except that for which I put into your mouth. And what the angel of the Lord is basically communicating to Balaam is this. This is serious. It's a serious thing to be the mouthpiece for God. So Balaam comes to Balak, the king of Moab, And Balak says to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel, and I'll pay you handsomely for it. So they go to this place, and they're up on a hill, and Balaam says to to the king Balak, he says, i got to tell you, the only thing I can say is whatever God puts into my, my heart, in my mouth. So they're up on this hill overlooking the tribes of the people of Israel who are camped down in this valley, camped around the the tabernacle, and Balaam goes to curse the people of Israel, and instead a blessing comes out of his mouth. 
And Balak's like, no, 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 I want you to curse them. And Balaam's like, I'm sorry, but I can only say what God puts into my mouth. And Balak says, well, let's try another spot. So then they go and find another spot where they're up on another hill overlooking the people of Israel. And once again, the same thing happens. Balaam, instead of bringing a curse, brings a blessing upon the people of Israel. And again, Balak is frustrated by this. He says, let's try it one more time. And they go to another spot. And this time, the same thing happens, except not only does Balaam pronounce a blessing upon the people of Israel, but he gives a beautiful prophetic blessing of the Messiah, of when the Messiah is going to come and what he's going to do for Israel and to Israel and through Israel. And so he pronounces this beautiful blessing of the Messiah. And Balak is just incensed. He's like, man, this is not what I wanted you to do. And this is when Balaam says this. He says, you know what? I can't curse them. But I can tell you how you can get them to curse themselves. He says, this is what you need to do. Get some of your prettiest young maidens, send them down into the camp of Israel, and have them seduce the men of Israel. Have them sleep with them. And you'll get these, the people of Israel, to curse themselves. And so Balaam, Balak likes that idea. He sends some of his beautiful maidens down into the camp of Israel, and they seduce the men of Israel, and they end up having sexual relationships with them. They take some of them to be their wives. They start worshiping their gods, and they end up cursing themselves. And this is what the book of Revelation calls the doctrine of Balaam. And this is the example that Peter gives here of these false teachers. They've gone the way of Balaam, and the way of Balaam is greed, where greed is the driving force in everything that they do. They have no fear of God in their hearts. They're not there to serve God. They're not there to serve the people. They're only there to serve themselves, to serve their own lust and their own appetites. And so this is what Peter describes as the way of Balaam. This is what these false teachers do. They've gone the way of Balaam. They're practicing the doctrine of Balaam. Well, in the rest of this chapter, he gives us the results of what happens to these guys in verses 17 through 22. Let's read that, and then we'll break it down. He says, These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow or a pig having washed to her wallowing in the mire. The first thing, the first result that Peter says of these false teachers is that they are wells without water. Imagine. How disappointing it would be. You're marching through the desert. You come to a well. 
You're thirsty. You're like, man, I'm going to die if I don't get something to drink. And the well is dry. That's what he's saying these guys are like. Or put it into our modern day vernacular. We're cruising along somewhere. We're really, really thirsty. We're going through a park. We see a drinking fountain. We go and push the button and nothing comes out. We've experienced that. It's disappointing. That's what he's saying about these guys. They, they have no refreshment in them. In verse 18, he says, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. In other words, they have a big noise, but no substance. I love the story of the American native who was asked by some people to go to church. And it was the first time he'd ever gone to a Christian church. And on this particular Sunday, the pastor of this church during that week had really not spent the usual time or the normal time, what a pastor should do in preparing for his message. He hadn't really spent time with the Lord. He hadn't really studied the passage. And so he decided to make up for his lack of preparation with just his charisma and his energy. And so he's up there and he's talking real loud and he's walking all over the place and he's working up a sweat and he's pounding on the pulpit and the people in the church loved it. They were saying, man, didn't he preach up a storm today? And then they asked this old, wise American native, hey, what'd you think of the sermon? And this was his short six-word answer. He said, high wind, big thunder, no rain. I love that. That's essentially what Peter is saying about these guys. High wind, big thunder, a lot of noise, but no rain, no rain, no refreshment. They're, they're well, they're clouds without rain. They're wells without water. They make a lot of noise and they can sound eloquent. They can come across profound, these false teachers, but they have nothing of any substance to offer the people. Do you know that every single human being has an inborn thirst inside of their hearts for God. It's put there for by God himself. You know, during the fall, man's relationship with God, when Adam and Eve sinned, was broken. Sin entered into the world. It left us in a place where we were separated from God because of our sin. And it created with inside of us because we were made to live in relationship with God. It created inside of us a vacuum, a void, a thirst, a God-shaped hole that can only be filled by entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And every single human being has this thirst inside of them. And these false teachers, they know this. And they make promises. They share things that are, that are kind of aimed to make you think that it's going to fill the thirst and it's going to satisfy the thirst and fill the void, but it doesn't. They're wells without water. They're clouds without rain. Augustine said this, Thou hast made us, speaking of God, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. It's only coming into a true relationship with God that that, that void inside, that thirst inside of you can be filled. Remember what Jesus said to the woman there in John chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria? He meets this woman at this well and he says, you know, everybody who drinks the water of this well is going to thirst again. And that's how it is with people. People are trying to trying to fulfill their thirst today through many other pursuits. 
They try to find it in pleasure. They try to find it in people. They try to find it in possessions, some through drugs and alcohol. And they're trying to satisfy this hunger, this void that is inside of them. And, and no matter what it is, it's like Jesus said, whatever well you're drinking of, it's, you're going to thirst again because it doesn't satisfy. But then Jesus said to that same woman, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up inside of him to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, in me, there is a perpetual flow of life that is available. There's a a fountain that never, ever runs dry. Jesus said something similar in John chapter 7 when he said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes to reside inside of you. And he quenches your thirst. And he continues to fill you and satisfy you with the life that you now have in Jesus. So these false teachers, Peter tells us, they're wells without water, they're clouds that bring no rain. Number two, verse 19, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Notice that, verse 19, while they promise them liberty, free sex, free love, free this, this is going to satisfy you, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. They're saying, hey, this is going to set you free, but actually that thing that you begin to pursue that is outside of Christ, it only puts you in bondage, that you thirst for more and you're never, ever satisfied. It was William Barclay who said this, if a man dedicates himself to those fleshly pleasures, in the end, he so ruins himself in bodily health and in spiritual and mental character that he cannot even enjoy them. The glutton destroys his appetite, the drunkard his help, the sensualist his body, and the self-indulgent his character and his peace of mind, and begins his experience of hell while still on the earth. They, they're living in a state of being in hell. Well, still on the earth because they're never satisfied. You know, there's going to be people, there's people there right now in hell, and there will be people living in hell in torment for, for throughout all of eternity who are going to be kicking themselves because they realize that what they pers- were pursuing, although it might have brought them momentary pleasure, it wasn't satisfying them at all. And there's people today that are living in that state now, and they're in, in this trap. They think that it's going to bring freedom, but it puts them in bondage. It's like I told you before, the mathematics of sin is always the same. Sin will add to your sorrow, it will subtract your joy, it will multiply your problems, and it will divide your heart. That's the mathematics of sin. That's what sin always does in our lives. And so these false teachers promise, but they can't deliver. They pretend to offer life, but they end up offering death. It's like the Judas tree. 
that you find there in the Middle East and in places like Israel. It's a tree that has this beautiful red flower. It's very attractive and it attracts bees by the millions, but the nectar that is in this flower has an opioid that it, in it that it's very, very deadly. And so these bees come, they see this red flower. It's like, oh, that looks so pretty. That looks so inviting. They come and they land on it. They partake of the opioid. And what ends up happening is they end up dying minutes after they've flown away from that flower. And so you can always find, if you see a Judas tree, a pile of dead bees underneath it. That's what sin does. And that's like these false teachers. They promise liberty, but they themselves are enslaved to sin. They promise liberty, but the result is death. There's no freedom. There's no fulfillment apart from living in submission to Jesus Christ. It's like as P.T. Forsyth Forsyth said, the purpose of life is not to find your freedom, but it's to find your master. That's so true. We think, man, I need to find freedom. I want to find my freedom. And in reality, real true freedom is coming to live in a relationship and being submitted to the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who created you to live in relationship with him and that you exist to bring him glory. And that's where true freedom, that's where you come to realize, hey, this is what I've been made for. This is what living is all about. It's living in relationship with God. It was Jesus who said this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then just so you would know and not be you know, unmistakable about who the truth is he said this and the son of man he who the son of man sets free is free indeed i'm the truth the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by me i'm the one who sets people truly free so these false teachers promise freedom but they can't really deliver freedom instead they deliver bondage number three Peter says they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Look at verse 20 again. Let's read this one more time. He says, For if after they escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, this is a heavy statement. Peter says, it's one thing, you see, to know the truth about Jesus, to know it, but not accept it. That's the unbeliever. He knows the truth. He's heard the truth. He hears the gospel. He's like, nah, I don't want that. that that's one thing. And that's bad. Okay, But Peter says it's even worse to know the truth, to have embraced the truth, to start, you know, in a sense, following Jesus, and then to turn away from him and once again pursue the flesh and become entangled again. He says that's worse than at the beginning. And I think the reason why he says this is because when a person who comes in and really experiences a true encounter with Jesus Christ and then walks away from him, there's a new kind of hardness of heart that they begin to experience because the, the Holy Spirit loves you enough that he's going to seek to make you miserable in your sin. And so in order to stay in your sin, when the Holy Spirit is like that alarm clock, you know, that's trying to get your attention, like, Rob, you're not doing, you're going in the wrong direction, or you shouldn't be, you know, going in this way, and you resist that, and you ignore that, your heart begins to become calloused. 
toward the Holy Spirit. And Peter says that's, that's worse than even in the beginning. Now, verse 20 and 21 has caused some confusion in church circles. Now, some people have taken this to mean that a Christian can lose their salvation. And they'll, you, they'll cite this passage as an example. I want to I just be, be very, very clear. Now, you hear me on this. A Christian cannot lose their salvation. Okay? I mean, think about the idea of losing. It's like, you know, where'd my salvation go? I lost it. You know, it's like that, that you can't lose it. However, the Bible is very clear that there are people who were walking with Jesus who walked away from him. Now, John says they went out from among, they, they, they left us because they were never really a part of us. That's John's explanation in his epistle about some people that he was talking to, probably referencing Judas. But Paul says this. He describes a guy by the name of Demas, and he says, Demas has forsaken the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, in the last days, days like this that we're living in, he says, there will be many who depart from the faith. And I say this, you can't forsake something or depart from something that you were never a part of. So which is it? They went out from us because they were never a part of us, or they've departed from the faith? Well, I think it can be both. There are people who go out from us because they never were really a part of us. They really weren't truly believers. And there are people, the Bible says, that depart from the faith. Now, here's what I want you to listen to me on this. I think it's possible. You cannot lose your salvation, but I think it's possible to walk away from it, to walk away from Jesus. I think the Bible gives us several different examples of that. However, what happens to that person that does that I'm not really sure. The Bible gives some really, really strong warnings about those who forsake the faith. And what those warnings mean, I'm not really positive about. I don't think anybody can be dogmatic about it. But I'll tell you this, for my life personally, I don't want to find out. These strong warnings that are given, I don't want to be like, I'm going to test that. You know, I'm going to just walk away from the Lord. No, I don't want to find out what those mean. So I'm choosing to abide in the Lord, to walk with Jesus for the rest of my life, to keep my eyes focused upon him. Now, concerning this passage, however, I think it's important that we remember Peter's talking about these false teachers. That's the context these false teachers. And I think what he says in verse 22 really, really gives us the, the answer to this dilemma as it relates to these men. Look at verse 22. He says, but it has happened to them, these false teachers, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow or a pig having washed to her wallowing in the mire or the mud. Let me ask you this question. How many dog owners here? Okay, a lot of dog owners. We have a dog. Show of hands. Have you ever seen your dog throw up and then lick up its throw up? How many of you have seen that? Your dog do that, right? It's gross. It's gross. My dog does that sometimes, and then he wants to come lick my face. I'm like, get away from me. What's wrong with you, you know? Now, why does a dog do that? A dog does that because it's part of his nature. 
It's what dogs do. I don't know why, but it's what dogs do. Now, I want to say this, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to be gross, but you're going to remember this analogy. I have never done that. I've never thrown up, looked at it, and thought, oh, that's the pizza from last night. I think I'm going to scoop that up, you know. And No, I've never done that. We don't do that. Why? Because that's not our nature. That's what dogs do. Because they're animals. They're weird. Okay, They're not people made in the image of God. Or it's like the pig. He uses the analogy of the pig. You know, you, you can take a pig and you can dress it up. You can put a dress on it. You can make it look like that, you know? It's all cute and everything, right? Put some lipstick on it, some earrings. But the minute, the minute that you let that pig loose, guess what it's going to do? It's going to run to the mud. It's going to run to the mire. Why? Because that's its nature. That's where it likes to be. And this is the point, I think, that Peter is making here. These guys act this way, the way these false teachers are acting, because this is their nature. They're not really born again. They maybe have experienced a little bit of Jesus. They've experienced a little bit of the church. But their nature all along has been that of greed and covetousness and seeking to please their own flesh rather than pleasing God. They're crooks and con artists peddling religion to take advantage of others. And as we looked at last week, Peter said, and their judgment will be severe. Severe. It's their nature. And that's what he's wanting us to see. That's not your nature. You're born again. You know Jesus. You're living in relationship with him. So you want to follow him. Now, one last thing about Balaam before we go today. Before we have communion. This will be our setup for our time of communion. It's very interesting that when God had his people camp. You know, our God is a God of order. And when God would have his people camp in the wilderness, when they were journeying through the wilderness, he had them camp around the tabernacle, around the place of worship. And he had them camp around it in a very orderly fashion. And so he called, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 3, the, the tabernacle would be in the center of the camp, and on the west side, on the back side of the tabernacle, was where the tribes of Ephraim, which also included Benjamin and Manasseh, that they were to camp. And, and they were the smallest group among the tribes. They numbered about 108,000, counting only the men. And then on the front side of the tabernacle, where the entrance was, he had the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah would camp there. And the tribe of Judah also included Issachar and Zebulun. They were the biggest of the tribes, about 186,000 in, in those tribes. And then on both sides of the tabernacle, he had the tribes of Dan, which included Asher and Naphtali. They numbered about 150,000. And then on the other side was the tribe of Reuben, which also included Gad and Simeon. They also numbered about 150,000. 
And so if you were looking at the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness from an aerial view, if you were looking down upon their camp, this is what you would see. What do you see there? A cross. Isn't that amazing? So here, picture this. Balaam goes up on this hill. He's looking down over the nation of Israel, and this is what he sees. Now, this has no significance to him whatsoever. He has no idea why it looks like a cross. He doesn't even know what a cross was. They didn't have crosses in that day. But this is extremely significant for us. Balaam goes up upon the hill and he's trying to bring a curse upon the nation of Israel and all he can do is speak is a blessing. We live today where our enemy wants to pronounce a curse upon us. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, we live in the shadow of the cross. And instead of being cursed, we're blessed. Because the Bible says that Jesus actually became a curse for us. That he took upon himself our sin and our shame and our punishment. He became a curse in our place there upon the cross so that you and I could be blessed. So that our sins could be forgiven and our guilt could be removed. And we could live in a blessed relationship with God because Jesus took the curse upon himself. We are covered by the cross. Now, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, you haven't opened up your heart to Jesus, you're not living in that relationship with Jesus, you're still under the curse. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and the soul that sins will surely die. And all of us, it says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Where if you don't know Jesus, you're under the curse, separated from God doomed but jesus came and went to the cross and took all of our punishment and our shame upon himself he died in our place so that we could have our sins forgiven and our guilt removed and so that we could be saved and set free Jesus did that for us. And if you're here today and you don't know him or you're here today and maybe you've walked away from him and you would desire today to get right with the Lord, you can do that right now by simply just opening up your heart to Jesus, that you can allow the cross of Christ to cover your life and you can be blessed. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for these just incredible pictures like this that you put all throughout the Old Testament. Little, little pictures that were pointing, even when the people of Israel didn't realize it, to what Jesus was going to do. That he was going to take care of the curse by going to the cross. And Lord, as we are here today, we thank you that our lives have been covered by the cross. But Lord, I pray for anybody here today or anybody watching online who has not yet opened up their heart to you. That they're still under the curse because they haven't embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray today that they would make that decision right now to say yes to Jesus. With our head bowed and our eyes closed, perhaps you're here today and you know that you're not right with God. You haven't opened up your heart to the Lord. You haven't asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You're still under the curse. 
But today, you want to experience life and forgiveness and healing and joy that comes from entering into a relationship with Christ. If that's you today and you'd like to to open up your heart to the Lord, to receive His invitation to follow after Him, I'd like you just to acknowledge that by lifting up your hand. And I'd like to pray for you. Anybody at all that would say, yeah, that's me. Anybody at all that would say yes to Jesus? I see you there. Anyone else? All right, see you there, see you there. God bless you guys. For those of you who raised your hand, I want you just in the quietness of your heart to repeat this prayer after me. And those of you online, if that's you and you're like, you want to say yes to Jesus, just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. That I need a Savior. And I'm asking you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. To cleanse me. Come into my heart and make it your home. And from this day forward, I want to follow after you. I want to live for you. I want to know you. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. For accepting me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we wrap up our time this morning, we're going to partake of communion together you should have received when you came in a little cup and on the top is one little flap that you pull off and it has a little wafer in there that speaks of the body of Jesus Christ that was given for you to pay the price for your sins and then you have the cup of juice that speaks of the blood of Jesus that was shed And the Bible says that although our sins were as crimson, His blood makes us as white as snow. It cleanses us. And so as the band begins to lead us in this song right now, I want to encourage you, as you feel led, to just partake of those elements, remembering what Jesus did for you, celebrating that you're no longer under the curse, but you are under blessing because Jesus became a curse for you. Let's do that. As we worship, as you feel led, just partake, and we're going to just worship the Lord together right now.